All right, here we are. Data Protection <laughs> Breakfast Club. I gotta, I gotta get some control over this, man. I nope. cannot react in any way other than laughing. Well, here we are. Uh, We're here. Protection Breakfast Club. We got Ashley Slavic, Chief Privacy Officer at Viva, which is 4,500 person company. <clears throat> um, so big role for her. Um, Master of EU law. She's in, yeah. in, in Barcelona. So um, super stoked to talk to her. Yeah, she like she's got a super interesting background, man. And like she got to Viva early, right? Like it was much like smaller when she got there. And um, uh, so she's kind of watched, well, not watched, contributed to the company's growth and helped it scale and um, and done so like in the midst of GDPR, in the midst of CCPA, in the midst of LGPD, like, like all of it. And they're a global oh. company, global public company, and um, and she is just uh, balancing a ton on her plate. Yeah. She runs a team now, which is helpful. But she, like you said, she didn't when she joined, so she had to scale and grow the whole thing. And she was our first DPO, um, first person focused on data, first person focused on the GDPR, anything like that. So super interesting story with her. How'd you guys meet? You and I better at the same time. I think we met her at the Solove conference in Washington. So we, so we all met at once? I didn't I thought you guys knew each other. We met, we all met there. Oh, okay. I, I don't know why, why I thought you knew her from before. I don't know why I thought that. No. Yeah, well, <laughs> she, 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 she I, it's kind of, when have, you looked over, it looked like you were staring at this lady's shoes and it was kind of weird, man. It's kind of weird, I'm just gonna tell you. Like, uh, put uh, well, let's have the time of our lives on this one. <laughs> let's, get, let's get to it, man. It right. could be love. All right. <laughs> uh, here we are, the Data Protection <laughs> yeah, Breakfast Club with our friend Ashley Slavic, who's the Chief Privacy Officer at Viva Systems. She is, is very lucky to be based outside of Barcelona. Uh, mm. Very lucky person to be living there uh, in general, maybe, maybe COVID notwithstanding, but um, we're really happy to have you here. Um, and she wrote a song <laughs> for, for Dirty Dancing. She's a huge fan of Dirty Dancing and so am I. She wrote a song, I'm not gonna sing it, but we'll put it up on the episode description because uh, it's too good. Um, and before we, I just wanna like, I want, each of us to talk about our experience with this movie because I have a, a couple specific ones, but Ashley, you go first, please. Okay, sure. Well, thank you both for having me. It's great to be here and I really enjoy watching that episode. So I'm just thrilled. Well, so I am a child of the 80s and um, my one of my first gifts from my uncle was a Sony Walkman and it came with, you know, the headphones, little foam headphones and, you know, I'm five or six years old. So and it had one tape in it, and it was the soundtrack to Dirty Dancing. <laughs> well, uh, so at that point, great I had never seen the movie. I didn't know anything about it. But I have these first memories of walking home from the bus, listening to I've Had the Time of My Life, <laughs> and all the other songs. Where, and where, after a couple of weeks, I don't know what happened with the cassette, but it started to unravel in my, in my backpack. And so then I get home one day and I just had this mass of, you know, the tape all coming out everywhere. And I was just so devastated. So, <laughs> um, so you know, it just, it brings back good childhood memories to me. And that's why I picked this song and, and movie. I love it. <laughs> my, my memory is associated with the movie. Um, and it's not necessarily watching the movie. I had seen it, but then in high school, I had this, this friend, Maddie, uh, Maddie Franklin, shout out 
Maddie Franklin. <laughs> and uh, she, she grew up, uh, she's the youngest of eight. And they had these, their family had these huge holiday parties every year. They had a bar in their basement and they had these huge holiday parties their parents would throw hundreds of people out you know outside under tents and like they just went they they just had they loved it and then they had this huge holiday party and i remember going late high school so maybe i was like 16 or 17 and um and all the grown-ups <laughs> had left and it was like maybe 12 and all of us were all the younger people were were in the kitchen drinking and uh and I just remember the song comes on and one of her sisters and, and uh, her friend did the, the entire dance and did the lift in their kitchen. <laughs> and the whole, like this crowd in the kitchen was like, yes, like screaming, you know, I'll, I'll never forget it. <laughs> That's my favorite. Um, I'll tell you, like, I like this movie and it's like an all time kind of nostalgic favorite. I can't relate to it at all. Like <laughs> my, my, my people don't dance like this. We don't go to like, summer adult summer camp <laughs> like there's no like i'm a bad boy i sneak into the summer camp but i'm also a tremendous dancer vibes in my community like that's not a thing um uh and you know but it, it's like to me like this movie is very much like uh like symbolic of like americana 80s culture like that's just how i think of it and i think it actually did get some traction in like the latino and like african-american community where i grew up um, mostly because it's the it, it was some of the best white people dancing we'd ever see, yep. <laughs> even though it's not that good. <laughs> so like so like it was interesting and like you know shout out to uh, uh, Patrick Swayze who like can actually dance pretty good and um, I forget the actress's name um, she was uh, but you know she did a good job of kind of following his lead but he's clearly the like superior dancer in that situation it, at least it looks like he is. <laughs> I think uh, and it's weird hey man i gotta tell you like i know that john travolta did it too but i think it's tough to play the like i'm an amazing dancer but i'm also a tough guy role like i it, like i feel like that's hard you know um uh and so i think patrick Swayze kind of nails it he's awesome and so is yeah. she she i mean she's awesome in ferris bueller's day off also oh that's right she was in ferris bueller's day off yeah that's right um, this movie anyway to, this movie to me is is like more than him just being like a good dancer is he's he's um a rebel yeah, yeah, yeah. In that scenario he's a rebel and like it's it just for some reason that the gdpr does relate it does relate that to me for some reason the gdpr when it when it happens it felt like a little bit like rebellious like patrick crazy like a you little, bit, a little bit like like <laughs> now you all have to deal with this you know, or maybe, or maybe uh, the GDPR is the old man that runs the resort. <laughs> you know, I don't know. The, I think that's right. Right. I think that's right. 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 <laughs> I feel like the GDPR is the, the what's her name's dad in the movie. It's just like kind of annoying, <laughs> you know, yeah. and everybody's doing whatever they can to avoid his rules. <laughs> like yeah, that. That's the guy from Law and Order, right? He yes. Law and Order. I think so. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and it, it's uh, Jennifer Grey is the actor. There you go. There you go. What happened to her? Is it, what's her What's her vibe? I have no idea. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure what she's doing now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Probably, probably out of, working at a summer camp. If you watch adults. the dance video at the end, the dad twice gets up like he's going to stop them from dancing. And, you know, his wife is like, sit down, sit down. 
<laughs> he, he's like the ice the Ico and his wife's like the canoe you know like one's like crazy and one's like kind of tempered yeah anyway um, yeah <laughs> just relax man <laughs> just relax <laughs> just relax but it is a good movie Let's, it is, yeah, it, it, it's, it's in a good mood when you hear the song, you know, you can't help but... Uh. The music, the, I was going to say, like, the music of the movie, particularly the, like, you know, uh, the theme song of the movie. I mean, like, you want to talk about iconic, I think they're more iconic than the movie itself. Like, it's just, mm -hmm. like, other level, everybody in the world knows the song, whether you've seen the movie or not. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> Ashley, tell us how, how you, you know, like, uh, your path is interesting, you know, like, OECD... U.S., Europe. Will you tell us like a little bit about how you got yeah. where you are? You're, Sounds you're, like you've been having the time of your life. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> how many times can we put that in the episode? I'm going to say that a lot, so get ready. <laughs> have you ever felt like this before? I would say never. <laughs> it's the truth. It's the truth. <laughs> well, so my story starts uh, outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. That's where I was born and raised. And then I, Shout I out went to Philip. To yeah, it's not it's really my family's still there. So then I went um, to American University in DC for college. And I was really interested in international relations. And I had studied French in high school. So I studied abroad in London and in, in Paris and in my junior year. And that just kind of opened the world for me. I really felt like, okay, there's something about the European mindset and, and way of life that I really like. And so then when I went back to the US, I started working in a law firm as a paralegal and was planning to go to law school and so I looked really at law schools that would have an international aspect to it and lo and behold uh, there's a very tiny law school in the state of Vermont called Vermont Law School where you can do two years in your JD and get in your US JD and then you can do your third year at a, at a French law school in French and get a French master's so um, that's what I did so I moved to Paris <laughs> in 2009 and you know sat down in, in a French auditorium and started learning French civil law, um, you know, on French. And so that was really interesting. And um, there have been a couple of Americans who had done the program before me. So um, shout out to Gretchen Oldham and, and some of the other ones. They really just helped me get through it. And <laughs> it makes you really realize, uh, you know, we have a totally different approach, right? In the U.S., it's all about the Socratic method and discussion and, and testing problems and case studies. And in Europe, it's especially in France, it's, it's civil law and it's all about your outline and you're reading a code and you're trying to figure out how does that apply to that specific code. So it's just, it was really an opportunity for me beyond the language to see how different the culture is. And that's reflected in the GDPR and the CCPA, you know, we can see today. Because we're- and Your law school, like your law school experience. Wow, like <laughs> it's so foreign to me. It feels like a magical fantasy. <laughs> 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 no but it's super cool like what an interesting way it, and I love that you got both kind of exposure to both legal systems I one of my friends is from Louisiana and she tells me the same thing because like the the law basically mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't know a lot about Louisiana law but I know it's code-based legal whatever mm -hmm. uh, and so what an interesting uh cool and helpful uh way to become a lawyer especially since our practice area is so heavily influenced by like European um jurisprudence did you know sure. did you know that's what you wanted to do when you were in paris did you have that sense 
Yeah, so I mean, I knew that I wanted to figure out a way to work internationally, and, and you know, Paris was my my country or my city of choice in France. I can see the passion and, in her eyes, Andy. Yeah, <laughs> and a passion for, for French culture for sure. And you know, those who, who know me well, my friends and family, they always remember that I was always speaking about Fran France and and you know, wanting to do that. So I made it through that the third year, and then came back to the U.S. to the New York bar, and then I yeah, I landed a job at the OECD. So that's the international organization based in Paris. And it was interesting because it was really focused on international negotiation. They have 30 something members and their government representatives. Uh, you know, the US is very active in that. And I was legal counsel basically at the negotiation table to try to come to common agreement. And that was very interesting, a bit like a rulemaking process at, at the international level. And um, you know, you adopt guidelines, best practices. Those are the kinds of things the OECD does. Um, but the negotiation is still really, really there. So, so that was a good experience. I did that for about two to three years. And then um, I, through that, I had met someone. This is kind of when things changed. I met someone at Sciences Po who was really focused on healthcare compliance. And I started to do some consulting work for her. And that led me down the path to the transparency uh, movement. So, you know, you had the Sunshine Act in the US and then it was starting to come out with FPA. This was around 2013, 2014. Um, and that was really becoming interesting where companies were doing self-regulation in Europe to agree to uh, show all the value that they had transferred between a pharma company and a, and a doctor. And they all did it in a different way. So. I started focusing on that. Then we realized the other side of the coin was data privacy. And that's where I took this moment where I was like, I need to specialize in something, right? And I remember I was interviewing with Viva and you know, telling them about my experience with data privacy. And the end of the interview with the general counsel and you know, my, my current boss, he said, you know, I think if we go any further, we're gonna have to pay you. So, <laughs> um, so that was kind of kind of cool. So I came in as our first data protection officer and you know, basically built the privacy program from the ground up. Um, so was, in was that, was that pre GDPR? Yeah, so it was 2015. Um, so I've been in the role for five years. And we had Viva at the time with about 1000 employees. We were uh, like Silicon Valley uh, tech company focused on the life sciences industry. And our main product was CRM built off of Salesforce, uh, Pedro from the Shout out to Salesforce, yeah. yeah. So that was great, it was going very well. Um, but then around that time when I was hired, they wanted to get into data. And so that meant becoming a data controller and you know, just really stepping up, especially in Europe, because um, our operations were much smaller then. Um, so yeah, so that's what I did. I, I basically brought privacy out of security and then um, tried to understand what we were doing and how we would do it. And then GDPR, you know, 2016, it, the, it came out and then we had two years to, to work towards implementation. So. That's where I really cut my teeth, uh, you know, growing a privacy program, being a DPO. That GDPR was the time of your life. Uh, it was. Yeah, it looks like. <laughs> look, yeah. It, it sounds like you like. Um, sounds like you've searched through every open door. <laughs> uh, well, it, it oh, all. But, but let's 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 try to find the truth. Um, like, what's it, it like? This, uh, <laughs> what's it like being in a tremendous job security for you at that time? Like, because. In 20, you joined in 2015. In 2016, this major watershed law comes, and like you're you're the probably the the main person that is dealing with it and understanding it, and maybe the only person that's really yeah, and, and not just that, like not just that, but like what's it like going through all of that 
as an American lawyer in Europe. Like, <laughs> I, like that's got to be a strange experience. Just curious. <laughs> yeah, no, it's super, it's super interesting. I mean, I definitely think I got the title of Madame GDPR, you know, because I could help translate the, the cultural differences and uh, our general counsel is in California. And so, you know, I'm trying to work with my European colleagues, make sure they understand it. You know, as average data subjects, they know that they have this fundamental right to data protection because they're European, but it, at the same time, it doesn't necessarily translate to cloud software. So it was really about bridging that gap and, and talking about it as a way of its fundamental rights and this is cultural and it's important to have transparency. And, you know, of course in the US we have that, but it, it was more sectoral focused and, and it was not at all the same way that it was managed in Europe. So um, yeah, it's interesting. It keeps things interesting for sure. How did you deal with all the dirty dancing between like the safe harbor and uh, privacy shield and validations? Like, did that affect your company? I'm, I'm sure it did in some way. Like. Just what are your general thoughts on how those two invalidations played out and where we go next? And it's I'm sure, just interested sure. from your perspective and where you are, I think it's interesting. Definitely. So we were, Aviva was Safe Harbor certified. That was kind of the one thing that the, the previous security officer had knew to do. And so that was in place. And I remember I had started in July and I got a call in October. Um, oh, it's been invalidated. What do we do? You know, so then it was panic moment okay, we're gonna get the standard contractual clauses with the self-service link up available for our customers. We're gonna push out the communication. You know, we took bets on how many customers would sign up that first day. Um, and so we did that. And it was interesting because around that time I met, I guess maybe the following year, I met Max Schrems at a conference. And you know, his story is also quite interesting, just being a law student and now suddenly making a, a huge name for himself and, and what he's done. So. Um, I, you know, I wanted to get to know him, but I also didn't want to know, you know, get my company's name on his radar <laughs> in a way. But, um, and then, yeah, so then we did Privacy Shield and it was very easy for us to leverage that so we could sign up for Privacy Shield. Um, but then of course, um, like we were discussing a bit earlier, everything is, it's not that stable, right? So Privacy Shield, the rumors oh, it might be invalidated and sure enough, uh, another thing that happened to us this year was the invalidation of Privacy Shield. So that was a little bit easier because we were able to say, okay, we've done this before. We have the standard contractual clauses. The challenge I'm facing now is what does it mean by additional safeguards and the guidance that we, we've all been reading into is just, it's not really practical <laughs> in, a, in a business sense. And nobody really knows. The data controllers, the data exporters don't know what they're supposed to be pushing on. And, you know, I've seen extreme responses from anything, no issue to all the way is we can't actually use any cloud software outside of Germany. Well, therefore, it's not really cloud software, right? So, you know, I don't know if you guys seen that, like just extreme reactions to, to try to keep data in Europe. Not, not yet. Have you, Pedro? Mm -mm. No, like nothing radical. I mean, I, I've got some pretty strong viewpoints on the whole debacle of cross-border <laughs> data transfers and whether or not it actually protects people uh, to invalidate these things, right? Because I feel like mm -hmm. there's got like, there's like the technical validity of something, legal technical validity of something and making decisions just based on the technicality of the law. And then there's like the public policy component of it, which is like, does invalidating, like does saying, for example, to American companies who go through the certification process, that's invalid. And then they just stop doing the certification process. And like, how, who's better off? I, I, I you know, I just don't understand why 
I, I get why Max Rems does what he does. He's an activist and I understand it. Mm -hmm. And um, he wants people to obey the law and he doesn't think they are. I just wonder about how the regulators think about what happens when standard contractual clauses get invalidated, which they will. Like in this like opaque guidance, if the court is signaling anything, it's that it's looking for strict compliance and that the guidance doesn't, to your point, doesn't drive you to any kind of uh, doable strict compliance, right? Like what it's basically saying is find a way to avoid US law. Like that's not a compliance strategy. Like, what are you talking about? Yeah, there's a lack of practicality going on there. Yeah, exactly. that's the best way to say it. Yeah. Uh, and as a vendor, you know, looking to service enterprise customers, my expectation is actually that it'll, it, my expectation is that at some point, whether that's sooner or later, I don't know, I'm going to be getting requests to amend my standard contractual clauses with additional safeguards in there. And then some, that some of them will be ludicrous and mm -hmm. some of them will be fine. And some of them will be in the middle and it's just another contract project. And that, yeah. and that, and that in itself is a, is a problem. Like, so Pedro, to your point, like that's not the right way to solve a real problem <laughs> that's that's just okay okay well all right we got a lot of contracts to do and we've got some internal uh system enhancement to do and maybe there are some changes that we want to make um with respect to responding to these and maybe it does improve things uh for some companies makes them focus a little bit more but it doesn't really solve any problems yeah, and think about this though, like, and I know we talked about this before, but it's like, there's a direct conflict of laws issue here. Like, they're not compatible. And so what the guidelines kind of suggest to me is like, find technical additional safeguards to subvert legal requirements, right? Like, what? Like, what? Like, that's not how that works. Like, to avoid being subject to certain US legal requirements, which inherently are extremely similar to the ones implemented in Europe. Right. Yeah, and so like crazy. this is a yeah. And so this is a political issue being imposed on privacy practitioners and corporations to solve. And I think that that's not fair. The US and Europe should hash out their intelligence practices issues with each other and not use this as the proxy for that argument. Like that's how I see it. But you know, maybe I'm crazy. Actually, let me ask sure. you. The US, the US actually, when they gave their guidance, they said, what? The U.S. government is not interested in the majority of data that's right. there. So they made that point, but that didn't really go over well in, in negotiations. They say, well, you don't know about our particular case. But you're right. I don't know that that changes the protection of the data in any way, if there's any difference in your Related question. So, I, mean, I want to ask you a related question. Um, outside of the data transfer part we just discussed, do you think that GDPR has been successful thus far? We're like too few years few years in here with some data points. What do you think? Yeah, that's for sure. So it went into enforcement May 25th, 2018. So we have a couple of years. I mean, I, I, I think it's, it's definitely given a lot of job security in terms of pro data protection officers. We've seen IEPP, you know, the, the membership is much larger and there are people, companies are definitely starting to recognize that. So if that was what was needed to do, then I think that's like something to be celebrated, you know, to say, okay, look, we, we do care and, and people do have a right to know what you're doing with the data, the transparency. Um, I mean, I would 
I guess it depends on what exactly success metrics we're looking at, right? Like, you know, what, what, what do you have in mind when you say like, is it successful or not? Well, I think, I think it had, the question has to be, are Europeans privacy, are European citizens privacy, is European citizen privacy more protected today than it was before GDPR in the sense that their private space has barriers to it now that didn't exist and that they can take advantage of in a meaningful way. Like that's the point of GDPR, right? Like to help people exclude others from information about them. Does this work or are there enough gaps through GDPR and ways to rationalize legal basis and, and usage rights that really the same information is flowing in the same way, just based on a new legal framework that's more complicated and expensive to implement, like you mentioned. So there's just a lot more people paying attention to a problem, but still solving it and navigating it. Like, I guess that's... Yeah, I mean, it, what's interesting is when we look at data subject rights, we see that when we're no sending notification that the opt-out rates are, are quite low, you know, they're, no. they're less than 1%. I mean, our, one of our products is publicly available information related to healthcare professionals. So, you know, the information is already out there on Google, uh, but we, you know, we, we don't see any issue, like the data service themselves are not saying that they don't want to be a part of that. So, um, you know, I guess they either feel protected or they're not exercising the rights uh, in that way. Well, it's hard to exercise your rights too, right? Like it's easy if you get a grudge on a company. Like if I get pissed off at Spotify, or, right? Like I'm just mad at them um, and I know enough and I live in, London, yeah, sure. I'll follow. Maybe London's a bad example now because of Brexit. But like, I live in whatever. I live in Paris. Um, sure, I'm gonna smash them with some data subject access requests and just be annoying and do all these things. And people do that kind of individually with some companies. But if I am philosophically interested in protecting my privacy and want to do it for real, meaning I want to stop, I want to know what all companies are doing with my data. I can't do that today. I can't do that right now. I, if I live in Paris, I can't know for sure every company that's using accessing my personal data and how they're using it. I can't do that. That's not possible. It's legally possible, but it's not able to be done in the real world. I don't even know who some of these companies are, how I'm going to follow the data subject access request. And there are some tech providers that have tried to solve that problem. We've seen that. And um, it's actually, it, it's quite a nightmare because they'll send you a request because somebody signed up for an app that's just to go find their data everywhere. And at the end of the day, you know, it doesn't fit into your portal for managing separate access requests. You don't even have the data. So you have this random message that's not related to anything else. So you're right. That's still a problem that needs to be solved. Nobody's yeah, and, then, and then this idea, like the processors don't have to respond to data subject access requests because technically they don't have access to the data but it's still there <laughs> like it's it's still there it's being used by algorithms for x y and z purpose like you know i think that's a gap too like if we're really serious about understanding well if the europeans are really serious about understanding how their citizens data is being used i just don't know that this thing has been as effective what if the lens what if the lens, what if the lens you're looking through success is a little different so i don't i don't disagree with anything you all just said if the lens for success is instead is well it creates the nomenclature of data privacy as um sort of as ashley mentioned around job security it creates these concepts it cements them as important the fines the potential for the fines are large so companies will take it seriously big and small 
um, it's become a requirement on all kind of like as a vendor, you know, for, for mm -hmm. sales and requirement and, you know, requirements to, to be able to sell software or anything that's processing data to anybody. Um, I, I, there's, there's gotta be some marginal success that's come from the eyeballs on the issue. Now, I don't, I don't think Pedro that it is ne nearly close to creating better privacy rights for people just yet, you know, but I do think it, uh, it has like shined the light on the topic and forced companies to do things. So we could debate forever, whether those things are valuable or whether ROPA is a really valuable um, you know, internal records and all the, the internal compliance hoops the GDPR makes you jump through um, in order to comply. Yeah, that's for sure true. And what do you think about the CCPA though, too? Because, you know, some people are saying, oh, well, you've done GDPR now, CCPA, but I feel like the CCPA is actually more challenging for business. We were discussing the definition of sale earlier. You know, what is what do you think the regulators had in mind there? What would be the metric of success for that? Well, here's the interesting thing about CCPA. It wasn't created by regulators or experts on privacy. That's it's, true. <laughs> and that's the problem, right? Like, you know, uh, it, you know, it, it's theoretically, I think, well-intentioned, right? Like we want to protect California consumers' privacy. But in its implementation, as far as we've seen, like, Look at just the last week's announcement about this button, like this fixation on this button. Like, what are you talking about? You know, like <laughs> whose privacy is better protected, whether or not we use this awkward button. And so like, um, yeah, I, I agree with your sentiment there. Like, I don't think that CCPA is like a stage two GDPR that's more advanced and we've learned from GDPR. And look, I'm not knocking GDPR in the sense of like, I, I think, the intent behind GDPR is very good. I'm a privacy lawyer. I want people to be protected. Um, and I want people to be able to preserve their private space and exclude others, including companies and governments from access to information about them. The question is like, do we need a prescriptive rule framework to do that? And to Andy's point, is the prescriptiveness of GDPR and CCPA what's driving people to get involved? I don't think so. Like the FTC can show you and it's enforcement, right? Like recently that through consent decree, it can put eyeballs on problems, right? Like it can say to Google and Facebook and a bunch of other companies, you've got a privacy problem for the next 20 years, you gotta do all of this. And you don't impose the same thing on companies that weren't making the mistake. That's, <laughs> you know, like um, Facebook's under consent decree. I work here. Anybody can go read that, right? Like, yeah, but it's like, can... is the mistake, was, the, was it a mistake or was it just like, in some cases it was maybe was a mistake and you know, yeah or intentional neither here nor there is, right like it's based on but in other cases it's an interpretation of how of certain things and and that's fine but um <clears throat> it's more visible for a large company like that but at the ftc would would i don't know it, it doesn't seem like we 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 have it all figured out for a lot of reasons and and sure. Uh, the CCPA to your kind of more pointed question, Ashley, like it's, I just think it's too early for us to even tell, like, we don't even know what it, the CPRA has the enforcement agency in there where it's going to be years till we figure out what this, what this impact really is. And if the definition of sale really holds up in the exact same way in practice as it actually is intended or whether it changes 
through regulations or not. Like it's just, it's too hard to, to forecast. I think one thing that Professor Goldman said to us when he was on with us, which has stuck with me is that no matter what you think about the CCPA and its success or what you think about uh, Alistair McTaggart for, for you know, not being a privacy, uh, lifelong privacy person coming up with it, you have to respect someone that notices something, feels fundamentally that it's wrong and puts his money where his mouth is to try to do something about it. So I do respect that it happened. I don't love the way it happened and I don't love the process behind which it happened. Um, and so I guess like my, the optimist side of me hopes that the, in the long term, there is some success that comes from it because just like the three of us all feel the same way, people should have certain rights and, and we work for companies that I think are, are on, on the side of be of transparency with consumers about what's happening and you know facebook for one provides a lot of privacy controls for people not everyone uses them but there's a, a ton of options that people can select and alice wants to be that as well as we develop features and we all use privacy by design to do it so i think like i don't know the optimist in me says i hope so yeah for sure and as i'm looking because i have a global scope so what i've been recently looking at is brazil and New Zealand recently had some new requirements in Singapore. And it's just getting harder and harder to keep track of all the different laws. But then at the end of the day, it's really just about creating trust, right? Like that's the, the currency and engaging with people who understand what you're doing with their data. And, you know, just like you said, being transparent. I mean, I think it's easier to just focus on the principle of it than to try to figure out if you need that button like on your website, you know? We've had the time of our life talking to you. Uh, <laughs> We, we have to, to go, but um, this is awesome. Thank you for joining us. You can go back to the incredible tapas that you're going to have. Oh, I love Barcelona so much. You know, I was born in Spain, Ashley. Did you know this? Oh, no, I didn't. Really? Yeah, okay. I was born in the Canary Islands. So technically, I was born on a colonized island by the Spanish <laughs> Empire. But um, yeah, yeah. So I was born That's in Spain. And I, yeah, and I love Barcelona. Um, been a few times. And uh you live, in my opinion, in one of the best places on earth. It's really yeah. cool, man. It's really so we've cool. been here about a year and a half. And yeah, Catalonia is, is really a beautiful place. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah. The culture is great. And, you know, we're just and a, lucky. And a good rebellious spirit there, right? Like kind of <laughs> anti-empire, which I love that, man. I love that. I love that. Awesome. Yeah, hey, Ashley, thanks a lot. Um, and we really appreciate it. We really did have the time of our lives and we owe it all to you. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. <laughs> Likewise, no, I really no. thank, thank you both for having me on the show and um, uh, looking forward to keeping in touch. Absolutely. Later. All Bye. right. Thank you so much. So, so now.